The rest of you grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, uh, there will, the, the passages will be on the screen above us. As we continue our look and walking through uh, the book of Colossians, this letter of Paul to the uh, church in Colossae. After a couple weeks in verse 16, we now come to verse 17. And what is a hinge verse uh, in, the, in the book? It is finishing up this put on section and moving into what it looks like to put on in a practical way in our lives. And it ends with this idea of, as we're going to see in just a minute, giving glory and honor to God in all things. And over the next couple of weeks, as we walk through the coming verses in Colossians 3 and in chapter 4, we'll see how it applies and calls us to worship God, to give glory and honor to God in all the different aspects of our life. Our parenting, our marriage, our roles as employees, our roles as employers, our different aspects within the uh, family of God. And so uh, that's what's coming up in the coming weeks. But this morning, we come to kind of the end of this particular section about putting on and how we're to live generally, principally, and then before we get to the application. Verse 17 is where we are this morning. Hear God's word. And whatever you do... Whether it's in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's where we start this morning. I also want to begin this way by turning your attention to Psalm 95, verses 1 and 6 as well. Verse 1 says this, So come, let us, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That's where we were last week. In verse 6, so come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. In Psalm 95, what the writer here, the psalmist, is telling us and communicating to us is that we don't have the option of whether we are worshiping or not. Every human being, whether they are an atheist or a theist, whether they are a Christian or a Buddhist, whether no, no matter what their age is, we are all worshiping something. We are all inherently worshipers. Last week, we looked at the specific form of worship within the Christian world known as singing, or a specific, which is a narrow definition of worship, to lift your voices of praise as a means of teaching and admonishing one another, but also as a means of giving glory and honor to God. We sing, and that is a specific form of worship. But this week, we come to a broader understanding in, this, in verse 17 of what it looks like to be worshipers in all of our lives. And they are connected to one another. Harold Best, who wrote the book uh, Unceasing Worship, that's a pretty prominent book on worship, says this, Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become to God. That is not simply singing and what we do here on a Sunday morning in worship, but that is more than that. Tim Keller says this in his definition, of worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your mind, your heart, and your will, indeed your whole being as you do it, using your entire person to ascribe ultimate value to some object. That is worship. What Mr. Best and Pastor Keller are both pointing out or reflecting is that the biblical concept of worship involves, yes, the singing and praise and worship that we do here on Sunday morning, but even more generally and broadly, though, it involves everything that you do. Romans 12, Paul, after 9, 10, 11 chapters of great theological treatise, gives us this in the turn and run of the book of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
in light of all these things I've been teaching you, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That our whole lives are to be as means of worship to God. We are always worshiping, and we are always worshipers. The question is, what are we worshiping? Here this morning, we see that we're to worship God and worship the name of Jesus. I'll give you three points. I think that this passage communicates about worship. First, the purpose of our worship, and then we'll look at the scope of our worship. And then finally, we'll look at both the means of our worship, the expression of our worship, and the source of our worship to close. Well, it begins with, we begin with the purpose of our worship. It says this in the very middle phrase there, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this phrase, in the name, is used both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it is do everything in the name of the Lord. And the New Testament, as God incarnate begins, he reveals himself in the person, the human, Jesus Christ. It becomes in the name of the Lord Jesus and this phrase is used over and over and over again. This word Lord is central to that name. In Exodus 3, the, the, Paul or Moses finds out from God what his personal, proper, specific name is. God tells him, I am who I am. That's my name. Literally in the Hebrew, it is Yahweh. And that's how the people of Israel would refer to God. And how they would even refer to him in light of or in comparison to all the other gods that all the other nations serve. Is we serve Yahweh, the true God, they would say. And this God, Yahweh, longs to have his name known and revered. He longs to have his name known because it reflects, to know his name is to know his character. They, are, they go with one another. God's character and his deeds reflect on his name, and his name reflects on his deeds. We see this when, when God talks about his interactions with Pharaoh, the, the, the slave master over the people of Israel in which God interacts with Pharaoh, and he does it, it says this in Exodus, to reveal his own, the glory of his name. Here's the interaction. It's, it's, it's awesome. I, I loved a series, previous series I got to do with some youth students when I was a youth pastor, in which we walked through the story, walked through Exodus, and in particular spent a significant amount of time on the plagues. The plagues are genius. Because what we see in the plagues in Exodus is God is making war against Pharaoh. And all the plagues that we see there, all those like the frogs and the gnats, what it's referring to there, what God is going after, are all the different idols and gods that the Egyptians worshipped. It's as if God has taken them. Have you ever taken, when you're playing with your kid or when you were younger, and you take somebody else's hand and you're slapping them with it? That's what God was doing. Is he took their very idols and he slapped them in the face with it. And God is then bending down like you can imagine like a sports figure doing, taunting his enemies and going, say my name. I am Yahweh. You are not God, Pharaoh. The frogs, the gnats, the cows, the Nile River is not God. I am the true God. I am greater and more glorious than anything else in the world, and I want my name known. And the people of Israel, they revered God's name, God's people. In fact, they, got, they came to the point where they, would, they overdid this in their reverence of God's name. We should revere God's name, right? He puts it right up there in the, the Big Ten, right? 
Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Israelites took this and they ran with it, so much so that we even hear about the Essenes, the men who wrote what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a group of people, of Israelites in particular, who lived out in the desert in caves. And they they wrote, and what they would do is they would would transcribe, or they would write and, and create copies of the Old Testament law. And in the process of creating the old, of writing and, and making copies of it, whenever they would come to the name Yahweh, they literally wouldn't even name, write it all out. They would create a kind of a euphemism, euphemism for it, a, a shorter version, so as not to write it all out in, in, order to, in the hopes that they wouldn't de- defame God's name. And then as they came to even the euphemism, they would put down their pen. They would go and cleanse themselves in ritual cleansing, come back, take up a new pen, write the name, put it down, throw that pen away, and go wash and then restart what they were writing. That's so much they revered the name of God. In the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus comes and he declares very clearly and abundantly that he is the Yahweh, now incarnate. He comes in John over and over again. We see in the Gospel of John, he comes and says, I am. I am the Lord. And he takes on the name Lord over and over again. People often will say that Jesus never claims to be God. That's simply not the case. He claims to be Lord. And if you actually understand the Old Testament, if you understand how Jews understand who God was, that God's personal name was Lord. And in fact, they take up stones to kill him when he declares himself as such because they say anybody who declares themselves to be God must be put to death. But it is this name that we as Christians are to revere as well. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 11, that at the end of all things, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's interesting that, that that quote there from Philippians 2 is actually Paul is quoting from Isaiah 45, 23, where it's Yahweh is the one who, upon, in front of whom all knees will bow and every tongue will confess because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord incarnate, taking on human flesh to make himself known to us. Now, what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord, specifically? What it means to do everything in the name of the Lord means you do it for the sake of him. In other words, you do it for his glory. To do something in the name of the Lord is you're doing it not for the glory of your name, but for the name, the glory of God's name, for Jesus' name. Very famous verse in Christians, amongst Christians, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The theological statement of this particular church is what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was written some 400, 500 years ago by men called the Westminster Divines, which they gathered together hundreds of men. It's hard to get hundreds of men to agree on things, but they gathered together for 6 to 12 months, and they gathered together and created a theological statement, and it was so good that 400 years later we're still saying, we haven't come up with anything better. And so that's our theological statement that we turn to, but part of what they did is they both had the theological statements, but along with the development of the Westminster Confession of Faith is they also created these teaching tools called catechisms. They had a longer one for adults, and they had a shorter one for children. Now, in this day and age, if you simply know your shorter catechism, you're a theologian better than 90% of the pastors out there. So take up your shorter catechism, teach your kids, and maybe as you do that, you'll become a great theologian as well. But the very first question of the catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer of the catechism is this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
The chief end of man, the reason why you are created, the purpose of your worship, of your life, is to give glory and honor to God. And the reason why that's your chief end is because that is God's chief end for himself. That God, in his, he saves us and he gives us much glory and grace, but ultimately it is about giving glory and honor to himself, and that totally makes sense, right? It would be idolatry for God to give ultimate worship to anything other than the greatest being in all the earth, which is himself. Psalm 31.3 says this, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. The reason why God saves you, why he cares for you, why he guides you and leads you through the paths of righteousness, through the valley of the shadow of death, is, yes, for your good, but also for his glory. For his glory. The reason why God has created you, the reason why God has saved you is for his glory. This is what we see in Ephesians 1, 14, that he predestined us for the glory of his praise. We pursue righteousness in our lives. We pursue holiness and obedience so that God may be glorified. The man who discipled my father many years ago, my father was an early college student, was a young college student, it was a man named Jimmy Young. And he said something my my father has always remembered, which is this, that Jimmy said that we are trophies to the glorious grace of God. That trophies are not meant to bring attention to themselves, but trophies, you put them on the mantle in order to declare how great the the one is who won the trophy. And that's what we are. We are trophies of God's grace in this world. This is our purpose. In Philippians 1, Paul says that his greatest life's ambition, whether it be in life and then, yes, even in death, is that God may be glorified. What this means is this, is your life speaks. Last week we talked about praise and worship to God through song. That's clearly, inherently speaking to God, giving praise and honor to him. But also your life is a song. Your life is speaking. You are saying something theologically about who God is in the way you live. People make associations between you and Christ. We are called Christians, which literally means little Christ. So the question for us is, what does your life say about God? Paul's rather concerned about this in various places. In Romans 2, he actually says that the religious Jews of his day were saying, saying that the, he writes about the religious Jews saying that the Gentiles, that the pagan nations blaspheme the name of God because of how the Pharisees lived. Because they were such hypocrites. That's probably true today, isn't it? The name of Jesus is blasphemed because we are such moralistic pigs and we demand a particular lifestyle from this world and yet refuse to live it ourselves. We are Pharisees and hypocrites. Second Peter 2.2, 2, 2, many will follow, it says, their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. Because of the sins of known Christians, Christianity is often brought into disrepute, particularly during this particular season of our American life. The life of a true child of God revolves around these questions. Does this glorify my God? Does this, do these actions, do these words, do these thoughts reflect the heart of my Savior? Or does it reflect my own kingdom? Air Force chaplain wrote about a, a woman whose husband was going off to war, and he made her, his wife, power of attorney for everything. I think this is so representative of how we ought to think. And she, so she could sign documents. She could take out loans. She could do all kinds of things in his name as his representative. 
And she said she, every time she went to do something in his name, she would say, what would he want? Because she was doing it in his name. You carry the name of God with you. There may not be a more foundational question for your life. So many of us are caught up in the itty-gritty and the nitty-bitty of the, of the decisions that we have to make. In the end, so often it becomes so much more simple if we simply ask the question, is my life being lived for the glory of God or is it being lived for my own self? In particular, college students and young kids, this is so incredibly important that you begin to see that this is the framework of your life. It sets the trajectory of your life of mission instead of being self-satisfying hedonism, saying that I'm after simply my own pleasures, but I'm after instead the pleasure, all my pleasures in the glory of God. That's the purpose of our worship. Second, the scope. The scope of our worship. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a triplicate, literary from a literary perspective, this is a triplicate. Paul says it the same thing essentially three times, just to make sure you get it. Whatever you do, that covers what? Everything. In word or deed, that covers what? Everything. And just in case he wasn't clear enough, he says, okay, let me be clear. Just do everything and for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. This is a concept that we need. And it can be overwhelming, isn't it? But it's a concept that in Christian history we have lost. And a Roman Catholicism, actually, we lost this concept because we actually took a philosophical concept known as Platonism, turned it into Neoplatonism, in which there was a sacred-secular divide in which those who engaged in what they called sacred things or did more important than those who were engaged in the secular things, the regular, everyday work that you needed to have done. And therefore, in, in the church for many, many years, for many centuries, the priests and the men in Christian ministry and vocational ministry were engaging in the sacred, and all the other people, you peasants, you people out there, you people, you people, you're engaged in the secular. But in the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that was rediscovered was the Bible. And the Christians opened it back up themselves and began to see how God's word reflects on everything that they do. And there was a group of people that became known as pietists. Pietists began to branch, they branched out over the centuries into all kinds of groups. Methodists, what for the Wesleyan brothers and the holiness movement and the Puritan movement was theological purity and the quietest movement. Different isms and is type of people that come out from this, but they all flowed out from this reformed Protestant movement known as pietists, in which the revolution was this. It, everything matters suddenly. It matters how I live my life, how I go about my work. And in fact, all these things bristle with the sacredness of the divine. The sacred, it's all sacred what I'm doing. And this, this radically helped shape the Renaissance and the way we think about things in life and art and science and mathematics and education. And it changed the way we think in Western culture because our work was suddenly sacred. We even see this in paintings, particularly coming out of Holland and Northern Europe. You may see some of these things that were called realist paintings where they would, it, would, it was just, it seems boring because you look at these paintings, it will simply be some grapes and some cheese and some bread and a knife sitting there. And then this woman kind of just staring at it. What they're saying is that this woman who cuts this bread is holy, and this is sacred activity. They have pictures of fishmongers, and they're portrayed in such a way that it looks as beautiful as the Michelangelo's David, because it's showing that all that we do can be done for the glory and praise of God. The great crafts came from pietists. 
Their belief was that if you're a hat maker, you make hats to the glory of God. In fact, there were those who even took this so far as to say the way even we, we accent our words should be like God's words. This is where we get, Quakers did this. This is where we get, many of you raised in this traditions, where they would literally begin to speak as the King James Version. Not so much just when they would recite God's word, but literally they would use these and thous in their everyday language. It's because they believed in applying. They took it so far that even the, the, the way in which we say these things has got to be from God's word. Abraham Kuyper, the famous, the famous uh, theologian, I've mentioned this quote many times here. To summarize this, he said this, that God looks at every square inch and says, it is mine. This is the foundation. I talked about biblical worldview last week. This is the foundation of a biblical worldview. It's to say that God is the creator. It's all his. And therefore, we don't have to be afraid of science. And we don't have to be afraid of art. And we don't have to be afraid of education. That we are not to be Christians who just simply remove ourselves from the culture, but we create the culture. That we engage with the world around us because everything can be done for the glory of God. That's the scope. Everything, everything, everything. That's easy, right? Third, the expression and source of our worship. It says this to end verse 17. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Uh, this tells us about the all-encompassing life of worship that we ought to have. And this is actually where we're going to spend the majority of our time and in, in, in finish this morning. But all, it tells us that the expression of this worship has got to, it needs to come in the form of thanksgiving. But with that call, it also inherently tells us that thanksgiving is the source of our worship. The expression of worship is in thanksgiving, is in gratitude. Here's the question. How do we become a people who, out of thanksgiving, live every aspect of our lives for the glory of God? That is an enormous task, right? So you're saying, God, I, it's not just obey in these areas, in these areas. It's everything. That's a little overwhelming. How do I get there? i got to be thankful. How do I give glory to God? How do I have a thankful life of worship to you in all things? And you, will, you don't give thanks. The means of bringing that about is not by giving thanks for nothing, right? Giving thanks means there's something that is previous to our response. Thanksgiving is, means there's always something that is drawn, that is led to our thankfulness and led to our gratitude. Inherent to it is that we are responding to something that has been done for us that precedes it. And what is it that precedes us that makes us want to worship and give glory and honor to God? First, it's this, that God is glorious. Duh, right? That my whole life is to be given to, uh, to glorify and honor him the, the means by which I come to a place where I will do that is to see that he is indeed more glorious than anything. What does it mean that God is glorious? Three quick descriptions this morning. First, God is glorious in that he is indescribable. There's this, inc- this crazy, it's crazy passage in Ezekiel 1. 
But sometimes as a pastor, I want to be like, do I really want people to go read this? Because it's so, it's so esoteric, but you should read it. It's a vision that Ezekiel's having that is the likeness of God. And there's all kinds of bizarre things because he's, he's extending the, the, all the words that he can use as a human, all the images in this world to try to describe God. There's eyes. There's this person, this being that has eyes all over his body that represents God as the omniscient one, the all-knowing, all-seeing one. There's this wheel that has multiple wheels in it, and they're just turning everywhere, all at the same time, which means that God is omnipresent. There's all these creatures that are exhibited there. There's the eagle, which is the king of the skies. God is over the heavens. And there is the lion who's over the wild beast. And God is called the lion of Judah. He's over all the wilderness. There's the tamed animals, which is represented by the king of the, the tamed domesticated animals, which is the bull. And then there's man who is higher than all of them. And God, it says that these things are merely like God. They're not actually, God is not like these. Man is coming to the end of himself trying to describe who God is. To know God as glorious is to know him as one who is beyond our comprehension. He is indescribable. There's a place in which man's words come to an end. That is God's glory. Second, God's glory, glorious mean glorious means that he is weighty or that he matters. Kavod is the Hebrew word for glory, and it literally means to have weight. To be great with weight, with substance. Right? What is substance scientifically? It's not a gas. It's not a liquid. It is a matter. It's matter. It matters. And this is, we use that word not simply to describe in our day and age. Matters not simply just weightiness and substance, but also referring to how important something is. Remembering your wife's birthday is important because her birthday matters. It matters. Remember your mom's birthday because she matters. And here's the truth that God is glorious means that he is the one thing ultimately that matters. And in fact, nothing, nothing you live for, nothing you pursue, nothing you enjoy matters apart from him. If you can, you can have everything and nothing will matter if you don't have God. If you have God, then everything matters. Everything matters. He's the one who infuses worth and value in all things. He is weighty and he is glorious. Young people, if you want your life to matter, then you give glory and honor to God because he is the one who matters most. Third, God is glorious means that he is of supreme beauty. He's indescribable, he's weighty, he matters, but he's also supreme beauty. What's one of the clear ways in which famous song we sing to worship God is the doxology. We're going to end our service this morning with the doxology. Begins, the root word of the doxology is doxa, which means praise, to give glory to God. We are recognizing God is the object, the only true object of right praise. And we give glory, we give praise to something we find truly beautiful. You see, we, the scriptures don't simply want us to glorify God by going, well, he said he's going to crush us if we don't. So... Let's do this. Let's go glorify him. That's not the motivating tool of the scriptures. There are some warnings of that nature. But that's not the primary tool. The primary tool is this. I am beautiful, he says. I am glorious. And when you see me and you enjoy the beauty of who I am, it will change your life and you will live for my glory. We give glory to God when we find him most glorious. You know this happens, you see this in teenage boys, right? When they go from young, you know, young boys to teenage boys. When they're young, 
they don't like to shower. Their clothes look ridiculous all the time. They don't believe in basic hygiene. I literally, as a youth pastor, I was at a youth camp one time, and on a Wednesday night, three days into the trip, just, I don't know why I asked, but I just went, hey, guys, make sure you go brush your teeth. Have you brush your teeth? No, I haven't. Three guys said, we haven't brushed our teeth the entire week. I gagged. That's disgusting. If you're 13, brush your teeth. Two years later, those same guys, they probably showered three times a day. They brushed faithfully. They wore clothes that fit them and that looked good. Why? You see a boy who does that, you know he's seen something beautiful. (laughs) And it changes him. And so it is with the Christian. So it is with the human being who says, man, I'm going to live whatever way I want to. I can brush my teeth if I want to. (laughs) And all the rest of us are going, that's disgusting. And then they run into God and they go, I will live my life for his glory. I've seen something beautiful. Have you seen the beauty of God? Have you seen the weight of who he is, felt the weight of who he is? Have you come to see that without him, nothing matters, but with him, everything in your life matters? Have you come to the end of human ability to describe and felt the magnetic pull of in your description of him, finding yourself come to the end of describing him with various attributes, and there in that moment, bumping up against your inability to describe and worship who he is, find your soul lifted up and saying, finally, he is glorious period. I got nothing else to say. That person will be one who gives glory and honor to God. Now here's the problem. We don't see his glory. We veil it ourselves, even as Christians. The human plight is that we have separated ourselves from the glory of God. This is the human fallenness. It's the problem is that we have separated ourselves from God's glory. In fact, in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, they said, you are beautiful and awesome, but there's something that's more valuable to us. And ever since then, humanity has been longing, longing to find glory and beauty in something. They've been running around saying, are you glorious enough to bear the weight of my life? Are you glorious enough for me to give my whole life to you? People have said, have taken, they've used patriotism, and it's, people have given their life, but it hasn't paid them back. People have given their lives to relationships, to getting a, a particular attractiveness in a, in a spouse. They've given their life to finding be a beautiful home or a, having beautiful sunsets at the top of the mountain home or on the beach in Florida, and they've said that this, I will find glory here. But there's no glory there. We find ourselves, we, we get them, we achieve those things, and we're like, it's nice, but there's, there's something more. We long for something more. And we indeed have become tarnished image bearers of God. You see, we were made to be trophies of God's, God's glorious grace in this world, and instead of we have become tarnished. Simply look around the world around you. Look at human history. Go watch the show, the movie's Roots. See what humanity can do enslaving another people. Go watch Schindler's List and see what human beings are capable of and how far we have fallen from the glory of God. Go read the paper today where people open fire in Michigan and take the lives of people. We were meant to reflect the glory of God and now we do anything but that. We seek injustice instead of justice. We seek our own glory and we crush people with our systems of injustice in order to bring glory to ourselves and to seek all these things that we think will give us the gloriousness that we want, but they don't. So we need to be restored to glory. 
We're going to give thanks to God. Our whole lives are going to bear and display a worship that gives glory and honor to God. Then we must come in contact once again with the indescribable, weighty beauty of who God is. How how does that happen? John Orberg, some of you know him. He's a fairly uh, famous Christian writer and uh, spiritualist. He talks about the story of um, what this might be look like for, for us to be reconnected to glory. Tells a story from as when he was a kid. He was a Chicago Cubs fan. This is the 1960s. And during that time, they had a great infield. In fact, one year, the entire infield made the all-star team. But his favorite players amongst the Cubs was a guy named Randy Hunley. He was the catcher. Now, he said there was this one particular day that was an emotional roller coaster like he never had as a little kid. In which one day, their next-door neighbor called his mom and said, there's a man here named, there's a person here named, named, named Randy and wants to come see your son. And his mom said, well, little Johnny's at piano lesson right now. It was Randy Hunley. He wanted to come see him. He was in the neighborhood just visiting local kids. She thought it was just another kid who wanted to come over and play with little Johnny. So she said, he's at piano lesson right now. Come back another time and maybe you guys can play. (laughs) So he comes home from piano lesson. His mom tells him this, that a a, a, a person named Randy Hunley wants to come over and see him. And she said, I, I told him he had to come back later. You're at piano lesson. He lost his mind. He said he, he, really, he, he really wanted to do it. That moment was call social services on his mother and have her dragged away <laughs> for being such a delinquent parent to push away Randy Hunley. But, but then, so he goes into Great Depression that afternoon, this emotional roller coaster for this young man. But then at 5 o'clock, suddenly the, there's a knock at the door. And he goes and opens it, and there's standing Randy Hunley in all of his baseball glory. And he said this, I had held the glory, the glory of a professional catcher, full of power and full of a strong right arm. Randy Hunley apparently had, been, had, had visited various kids in the neighborhood and had to go to a speaking engagement, but because he had missed out in engaging with this one little boy named Johnny, he came back after his speaking engagement and came specifically to his door to meet him. And John Orberg said this, that he knocked on the door, the man knocked on the door, and when he opened it, the man, Randy Hunley, encouraged him to follow Christ. Then he gave him an autographed baseball, which he said his, his mom later threw away. But Orberg said this, to a 10-year-old kid, to a 10-year-old kid, the glory of Randy Hunley wasn't that he had a howitzer for an arm. His glory was that someone as important as he was would take the time and go out of his way to enter into the world of a little boy. And that's what Jesus does to us. The glory of God becomes just for us. This is how the separation of glory is bridged. John 1.14 says this, And the word, Jesus, became flesh, and we beheld his glory. But it doesn't look like the glory we expected, right? Glory in a manger? Glory in a feed trough, glory bleeding on a cross. We beheld the glory of the maker of heaven and earth when he entered this world and took up the role of a day laboring carpenter. We beheld the glory of the Lord who who took up his clothes and bent down with a basin and a towel and washed his disciples' feet. We beheld the glory of God when the author of all of life submitted himself to death to atone for our sins. And we beheld the glory of God when he destroyed death on our behalf. We behold glory still when he comes to you and me. 
ordinary fallen human beings for the glory of God is not displayed simply in the grandeur of his power and majesty, but his power and majesty is most beautifully displayed in his ability to take one, those who are enemies, those who are not beautiful, those who are running from his gloriousness, and to make him friends, to make him see his beauty and love his beauty once again, and to make them indeed glorious. That's the glory of God. And hear this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is both the fullest expression of God's glory to us, the greatest display of how glorious he is. His love, his power, his majesty are most clearly seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the fullest expression, but it's also in that it's also the means by which we experience God's glory. We were separated, but through the cross, we've come to know the glory of God once again, and we give thanks, and we live glorious lives in worship to him, all-encompassing thanksgiving, worship to him in light of his all-encompassing, life-giving sacrifice for us. That's the person work of Jesus is the means and the source and the fountain of all praise and thanksgiving. To see the glory and the work and the person of Jesus Christ is to know the gospel and to see the gloriousness of God. Do you know that gospel? That's the good news. Now that's, that's nice right now, isn't it? You got the preacher kind of being animated and we're singing songs and it was beautiful. <laughs> and that's great. But what about Thursday? What about Thursday? What does God give us in order to remind us over and over again of his glory? This is where we're going to connect it to the last three weeks. The great call is this. Over and over and over again in the, in the scriptures, here's the pattern we see. God does something amazing. He saves his people. He tells them about his salvation. In fact, sometimes he writes songs to, re, to, to tell them about his salvation. But then what the people do, they forget it. They forget his salvation. And so over and over again, the pattern we see is that he saves them, but then he comes in and he says, you need to remember. Remember. The application for so many of you is this. Will you remember the glory of God? Christian counselors, one pastor was telling me, a friend of mine was saying how he's talking to a counselor, was talking about some, some of the mental issues, personality disorders that people can have. And one of the personality disorders a person can have is a person can, one they were they only remember the very last thing that happened. They have no context to their life. This is how many of you are with Christ, with God. Church, that was great. Monday, something happens and I have to repair something in my house and my bank account has been depleted. It's the last thing I remember. Shake the fist at God. Can you imagine what it would be like to be married to a person who has this personality disorder, right? You're the spouse. You do, do you do one thing wrong. And suddenly that's what defines your whole relationship, right? What you, the, 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 the loose word you just used, instead of the loving sacrifice that has been engaged in that relationship over and over and over again, this is a picture of our soul sickness, is we are so quickly, to, we forget, and we need to be reminded of what God has done for us. And in fact, what we see in the sacraments and in God's word, and over and over and over again, God says, remember, remember. And Moses, Moses, God comes to Moses in Deuteronomy 32. I mentioned this last week. God, the composer, comes and he writes a song for Moses. It's called the Song of Moses. And he gives it to Moses. And he says, I'm giving this to you because the people are going to forget. And they need in their folklore worship songs so they can one day remember what I've done for them. 
The Lord's Supper, what is this? What do we say when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, the table, the body, the bread, and the, and the cup, they represent the body and blood of Christ broken for us on the cross to atone for our sins. And Jesus says, when he gives it to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. Remember. The Psalms of worship over and over and over again is about remembering. Psalm 105, bear with me as I read a few verses here. because It brings everything we talked about the last couple weeks together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. How do we remember? Three, three things. The last couple weeks and from Psalm 105. First, we remember by reading the word of God. So he gave it to us. We do not have a God who simply told us something once. Like your mother who goes, I shouldn't have to tell you more than once. No, he gave us his word forever to remind us of his goodness to us. Second, remember by seeing God's word, God's glory of what he has done. Connect this to last week. Harold Best, once again, in Unceasing Worship, says this in connecting the, 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 the specific worship that we do in church, the singing about how great of God, what God, who God is and all the things he has done with our broader general worship. Harold Best says, we don't go to church to worship, but as continual worshipers, we gather to encourage one another to gather up our worship and to remember the story that made it all possible. We want to tell a story in worship week in and week out. We want to be word-driven, but we want to tell a story. People are moved by story. And the story is this, is that God is this, and we have done this, and we have broken God's laws, but he has come and he has intervened and brought redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we say we have an assurance of pardon in him. And we say, thank you, God. That's our story in worship week in and week out. Paul Tripp, as well, reminds us of this. He says, worship reminds you that you are by nature a worshiper. Worship, as we do in here, is not simply an activity. It is an identity. So we come in to do each and every week. This is why we want to preach the way we want to preach and sing the way we want to sing, that it is lovely to come in and give you, and I want to more and more give you practical wisdom. Six ways to spend your money. Great. But that is ultimately not what you need. What you need is week in and week out to come in here and be reminded of the deep well of God's love for you and to be sent out as warrior, glory givers into your week. That's what you need. The third thing that we must do, it says in Psalm, 95, Psalm 105, in order to help us remember, is we remember by proclaiming his name and his deeds to all the nations. This is called missions. Psalm 95.1 says... So, excuse me, Psalm, Psalm 105, 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Isaiah 2, 26, 8 says, Your name and your renown, some people say, but literally it's remembrance are the desire of our soul. That a primary and significant way of remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings you face to face with the glorious nature of who he is is to tell other people because you can't forget how great he is when you're telling other people how great he is. It is the means of remembering, to tell people over and over and over again your story of how God has intervened in your life and displayed his glorious grace to you. That's how you remember. 
Remember by being in his word, by singing his word, and by proclaiming his word to anybody and everybody who will listen from the time you get up to your wife in your bed, to your children at the breakfast table, to your coworkers, and you come back home and you spread it to your neighbors. And the beautiful thing is this, is that this role, as I mentioned earlier, this role lifts you back up into who you were created to be, which is glory givers, image bearers who reflected the great nature of our God. And the more you proclaim the glorious nature of God, your life matters. In fact, it becomes quite glorious. We carry the name. You carry many names with you. You carry the name of your shirt, your school. Be true to your school now, the Beach Boys said, right? Your girl... Carry the name. The greatest and most glorious honor you have is to carry the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, this, was a, um, this is a, a high level. Um, this was like meta-narrative stuff. This was, a, this was universal stuff. And sometimes, Lord, that's so difficult to, to, for us to, to connect to. Specifically, Lord Jesus, I pray that in the coming days and weeks, that, Lord, as we think about these questions, that, Lord, am I living my life for your glory or for my glory? That as we ask that question, that you would make it specific into our lives. That this would not simply remain up here, the ethereal, but it becomes specific in how we parent, and how we do our work, and how we paint, and how we educate, and how we love, and how we cry. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that more and more as we ask this question, as we come face to face with your glory, that you would change our lives. Gracious God, I also pray against this morning the temptation in all of us to walk out and go, all right, tomorrow morning I've got to just ask myself this question. And it's got to do everything for God's glory, or that will crush us. Or we need to be empowered by your Holy Spirit who brings us faith to face with the, grace, the gloriousness of your grace. And I pray that you would empower us by that so that we go out with joy, giving glory and honor to you. We ask the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to worship, stand and respond, and we're going to close this morning, instead of with a benediction, but with the doxology.